This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. Your eyes on the times, you walk ready to speak up. But with so many problems, you're exhausted trying to keep up. This is the Church Politics Podcast, where you can get political commentary from a biblical worldview. We're not trying to be conservative or progressive. We're trying to be Christian in the public square. And I'm black as heaven. I'm made in God's image. Nobody can change my settings. Hey man, cut off my knees and put an end to my search. It's easy to sell your soul when you don't know what it's worth. What you know good, Ann Camp. You're listening to the Ann Campaign's Church Politics Podcast with Justin Gibney, a.k.a. Bishop Cooper's grandson, in the Windy City representative, the baddest brother above the Mason-Dixon line, my play cousin, the right reverend, Christopher Butler. Chris, as you know, and as I talked about for those who watch my uh, civic updates on social media, primarily uh, Instagram, there was a Republic first, actually, actually uh, Republican presidential primary last week. It was interesting. A lot going on. There were eight people up there. Uh, and as you know, when it comes to a debate, eight people is a lot. Really, anything over four people is a lot. You know, yeah. it just doesn't give the folks a whole lot of time to express their vision and where they are on certain issues. But I will say they kept it lively. It was an interesting back and forth. I gave the folks who I thought did a a good job based on who their base was. So not necessarily, you know, one thing we got to realize, Chris, is that these conversations and this primary conversation is not for us, right? We're not like Republican primary. We're not the Republican base when it comes to the primary. Okay. Mm -hmm. So I think when we watch this stuff, we have to keep in mind that they're not necessarily speaking to us. They're speaking to a certain kind of voter who they, who they need to get on their side to win the primary, whether that voter be in Iowa Super Tuesday state or, you know, New Hampshire or whatever. Based on that criteria, I think Vivek Ramaswamy did fairly well. Very MAGA. Nikki Haley, I thought, did better than people expected. But I'll be honest with you, Chris, she reminded me of the issues that I had with the Republican establishment before Trump came in, right? <laughs> you tend to forget that there were issues there before Trump, but she reminded me of that. And 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 as I said, I think her perspective in general is like a very Bush era neoconservative perspective that I just don't think is going to sell well. I think she she had a pretty good debate, but I, I just don't think a lot of people are going to be feeling that. What were your thoughts, Chris? I think for the most part, kind of came away with the same sort of impression. I, I thought Vivek brought the Trumpy energy that that's hot with the base right now. And so I think that was Good. I, I think that the biggest surprise for me was the what I thought was an underperformance from Chris Christie. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't think there's a huge, you know, base for him. But similar to what we saw from Nikki Haley, I thought that Christie would have just more moments in terms of the sheer skill of doing, you know, a debate, and he just never really got his footing. So that was a surprise. Other than that, you know, I thought. It was pretty much what I anticipated that it would be. And a lot of the fire was focused on 
Ramaswamy when people thought it would have been focused on DeSantis because DeSantis still is in that second spot. But he was able to kind of not necessarily dodge, but he just didn't have to take a lot of incoming where Vivek was sort of was sort of uh, provoking <laughs> the, the incoming yeah. fire and loving it. I think reveling in the attention and the fact that folks had to, to concentrate on him. And I'll be honest with you, as far as somebody, how he communicates, he communicates well as a politician. You know, he's not a politician. He's a business guy, but he communicates very well. He's, he's very quick on his feet. Yeah, he's, he was good in the environment. I thought that folks would lay off of DeSantis a little bit. If I, if I were coaching somebody for that debate, I would have urged them not to give him that much air. Looking at some of the polling, it did seem like he actually benefited from that. But I, I thought people might sort of look past him just because he's been sort of declining on his own. Yeah, but it seems like somebody might have been able to put in that kill shot, right? Yeah. Uh, to to kind of f- finish him off, and that just didn't happen. And as you saw, he held his own, and so he he actually has seemed to have risen a little bit or stabilized a campaign that was really hurting again when it comes to Ramaswamy a whole lot of things that disagree with it was interesting though where he stood when it came to Ukraine and it seemed like he and DeSantis were the only ones saying hey bro this blank check stuff does not make sense and when you look around a lot of Americans are saying the same thing I I don't I'll be honest with you I don't get the blank check we're we're, we're not really in this but oh but we are kind of in this but we are going to just write a blank check as if we don't have other things that we could be yeah. focusing on. Yeah. I mean, we'll do some other segment about that. But I, I think that that's one of the biggest questions because it, it speaks to this current situation in Ukraine, but it also speaks to a geopolitical framework. And the world has shifted more than a lot of people who are in government right now have allowed their, their, their policy approach to shift. And and that's where I thought Pence and Nikki Haley were just behind the times. And it's not that you have to every time, you know, public opinion changes that you have to change. I get that. But not even addressing that people did not feel that was OK. They were still in this mode yeah. where America is this. We stand in this position in the world. And this is what our job always is. And didn't really even recognize that a lot of people are feeling differently. It's not that we shouldn't help people, but there's always other people to help, right? The, yeah. You know, the, the thing to me is that we do this because we stand for democracy, to maybe to some extent, but there's also self-interest because there's a lot of places in Africa you could go. There's a lot of other people you could help yeah. out. You choose to support certain battles, not just because out of a, a, a full benevolence, but also out of a, a self-interest, which I'm not completely against, but we need to admit that and admit that things are changing. We'll have to have a conversation about BRICS and all that maybe next week. But but very, you know, uh, uh, interesting debate. This stuff is is heating up, and you can depend on the Church Politics Podcast folks to keep you up to date with everything that's going on. I want to give a shout-out, as always, to our patrons and supporters for supporting us in what we do and how we do it. If you want to support this podcast, if you like uh, the content that we provide, the biblical perspective, but also being as objective as we can when we're looking at political issues, you need to become a patron. So you can go to patreon.com slash church politics and you can give so that we can keep doing this. You will also be able to get premium episodes. So every now and then we will come out with premium episodes for those patrons who are giving once a month. The other thing I would say, and uh, Shardai is going to make me say this, is if you're watching on YouTube, 
please like and subscribe. We need to get some more. We, we got pretty good numbers elsewhere, but we just started putting it back on YouTube. So we need y'all to like and subscribe so people who like this kind of content can see us. Whew. All right. Now it's time to get to it. So grab your Bible, get your mind right, and prepare to think not like a Republican, not like a Democrat, but to think like a Christian. Chris, you, you may or may not know this, but me and my wife love going to concerts. That That is our thing. We try to probably go to about five or six concerts a year. And in the last maybe few years, I've been noticing that almost every concert I go to is run by Live Nation. When they merged with Ticketmaster in 2010, they created what I believe is a very clearly a monopoly a situation where smaller businesses simply cannot compete in the market with them, that they've completely taken over the market. Now, here's the issue with that, Chris. Since the 1890s, we've had laws against monopolies on the books. They are called antitrust laws, namely the Sherman Act. And the reason that we have these laws is because we want to prevent monopolies because they reduce economic competition and they hurt consumers. They might be good for the money being pulled in by some of these major corporations, but they're not good for consumers. When there's several competitors in a market, prices tend to go down and quality tends to go up. But if you have one large corporation controlling the entire market, no one can come in and compete and they can charge more without necessarily giving you high, uh, more, higher quality goods and services competition when it comes to consumers is a good thing. Well, just to give you a little bit of a history on this, it was Ronald Reagan who started what some have called the antitrust re uh, revolution, where the government that had once aggressively shot down corporate consolidation since the 1890s began to go easy on these mergers between major companies because they said that it made American companies more competitive globally which might have been true, but it didn't really help American consumers and American workers. They felt that going a little bit easier on their antitrust laws would be okay because the invisible hand of the market would punish the greedy and punish the exploitative. The government, in their opinion, did not need to be as concerned about that because it would be taken care of on the back end, I guess. Well, spoiler alert, Chris, but the invisible hand of the market didn't take care of all of it. So here we are now. We only have about three major cell phone companies, four major airlines, and two, two coffin-making companies in the, in the whole country. All right? And we pay more for all these products and all those services. Okay? When companies consolidate, they have more power to raise prices squeeze suppliers, suppress wages, which we've been talking a lot about lately, Chris, and influence policymakers. But before you get too upset with Reagan for starting this antitrust revolution, you should know that the Bushes, Clinton, and Obama followed suit. They had what you might call a minimalist approach to antitrust enforcement. In other words, they let major corporations run amok at the expense of the American consumer. Now, the New York Times editorial board wrote a pretty good article on this matter that was entitled 
Americans pay a price for corporate consolidation. And just so you know, when the editorial board gets together and says we need to address that, that something, it's, it's it's a fairly big deal. OK, and that's I got a lot of the information that I just mentioned from that article. So you should check it out. But here's some of the things they said in the article, Chris, and then I'll pass it to you. Starts off by saying across the American economy and in industries ranging from air travel to veterinary medicine, big companies keep getting bigger and more powerful. Swallowing smaller rivals has become a widely accepted practice. This concentration of corporate power, however, is neither inevitable nor desirable for the health of the American economy. The Biden administration is embarking on a wide-ranging effort to check corporate power by promoting competition, a stated goal of both parties. And it needs Congress to support its effort with bipartisan legislation. Think of that. It has proposed new rules like a ban on non-compete agreements that prevent workers from changing jobs more freely. It is seeding competition, for example, by investing more than $1 billion to open and expand smaller meat packing plants. And it has taken a tough line on mergers, blocking some big deals, dissuading companies from pursuing others, and even suing to unwind Facebook's 2012 acquisition of Instagram. Last month, the Department of Justice and the Federal Trade Commission, which are charged with enforcing antitrust laws, Propose new merger guidelines that would formalize this turn towards stringency, ending decades of acquiescence to corporations by both the Democratic and Republican administrations. Now, I want to say, hold up, because I know y'all hate both sideism, but sometimes they were both doing it. Whether you like it or not, I know it's not good for the narrative, but sometimes that happens. And let me let me also, before I finish, give a shout out to my favorite commission chair, who is Lena Khan. When we talk about the Biden administration. I'm not excited about a whole lot of those folks, but she's somebody that I I really appreciate what she's doing. So lastly, this is the editorial board speaking. Antitrust authorities have failed in their responsibility to the American people by assigning to themselves the burden of trying to figure out which mergers may be harmful rather than taking seriously their marching orders from Congress to prevent concentration. Right. They're making value judgments. Prevent the concentration is what they're saying. It concludes by saying the United States needs to update its antitrust laws to place stronger limits on corporate concentration and specifically to curb the power of tech companies. Bridging differences between the two political parties won't be easy, but enduring changes, but enduring changes in antitrust policy have always required bipartisan support. What are your thoughts, Chris? Yeah, I'm certainly appreciative of the article from the New York Times. I'm definitely a fan of a lot of what Biden has done, his administration, uh, on these issues. I I, I don't regard it as uh, nearly enough, but but they have done more than a lot of previous administrations. And for that, you got to give them uh, some credit. My big issue with this is actually related to that last part of the article that you read. And, and, And that's that this is a situation where these administrative folks within the government have exceeded the mandate given them by Congress. These antitrust elements of the government were created with the specific mission just to to prevent concentration. Then they took it on themselves with some leadership from folks in the executive. But this idea that they have to think through 
what kind of concentration is good and, and what concentration is bad. That was never part of the mandate. And, and this is part of that problem that some people call the deep state, right? It is, it is a state within the state in which unelected bureaucrats seize powers that were not granted to them, neither by the Constitution of the United States nor the Congress of the United States. I point that out because sometimes you hear that language uh, of the deep state much more rampant, I guess, on what would be considered the right. But for those who believe in, in antitrust on either side of the aisle, but they're probably, you know, there's probably overrepresentation on the left side. You have to look at this and see that this is also deep state. This is unelected bureaucrats taking power that was not given to them by Congress. Uh, and I think that's one of the big issues of our time is to to restore the power of our Congress. And it doesn't come out of nowhere, though, right? This, to me, indicates corporate capture. This is not just them one day saying, hey, it would be better to do it this way. No, there's a relationship between where they go to get jobs after they're done. This is not everybody, right? We don't want to impugn everybody. But if you look closely, there's a relationship between where these folks go to get jobs and how their policies have amazingly helped some of these major corporations in ways that were not intended by our antitrust laws. And like you said, the imperatives that they were given by Congress. Go ahead, Chris. Yeah, so for sure, I think that President Biden and his administration have to keep their foot on the gas. I think there's a lot more that they can do within the bounds of the laws that are currently on the books, just enforcing those. But I, I agree with the New York Times editorial page that there are new new antitrust laws that are actually needed as well. Um, one of the things that this article points out is that a, a key element of that Reagan antitrust revolution was putting folks on the federal bench who have the same minimalist approach. Right. The Biden administration, this is another one of those places that just frustrates me because the Biden administration has not done this, primarily because they're messing around with Senator Dianne Feinstein, who is on that Judiciary Committee. So they're not getting through the work. They're not doing the votes. And these are those parts of government that don't get talked about a lot in sort of social media and a lot in culture, but that really, really impact life for everyday people. And the ability to get folks to the bench is important and to make sure that those folks, because this is one of those things that, that you go to your kind of like democratic representative and the, all of the considerations that they want us to pay attention to are these kind of like cultural issues, right? And, and they're not going to be issues just that you and I are, you know, necessarily supportive of, but certainly people on the left, they're going to be like, you know, finding judges who are going to ease up on gender, you know, ideology and ease up on, you know, abortion and all these types of things. But what the Democrats have been good at doing in the past is finding folks who share those cultural values, but whose economic values are much more reflective of those Reagan economic ideas. And so there's just so much work that we have to do to think through how the nitty gritty of government is impacting our everyday lives way past what's on the headlines and, and the talking points. Yeah, yeah. I'm not one of those people who feels like everything wrong with America is due to capitalism. That's just not that's just not my perspective. I think if you look at socialist countries, there's plenty of things that that go wrong. Uh, there's plenty of reasons not to want government to have that level of control, especially if you don't like who's controlling government. Right. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that I that upset me about folks 
especially some Christians who are so go so hard for capitalism is they don't tell you about the downsides. Right. When you look at this corporate consolidation, which when you look at what it's done to wages, when you look at what it's done to just the quality of things that we have and the, the prices that we pay. Nobody says that that's a potential downside. You know, no big capitalist admits that that's a potential downside of capitalism, right? They just talk about the good things. And I've said over and over, anytime a Christian talks about any sort of system, you don't just talk about whether it's better than the alternative. That's That can be part of the conversation. You also need to talk about where it can go wrong. If you talk to somebody who's a socialist or a capitalist or anything else, and I'm more with G.K. Chesterton on, on, on this stuff, I think business and government should balance each other out for the people. But anytime anybody's promoting any of those systems, ask them where that system can go wrong. And if they can't tell you, they are indoctrinated. I don't believe a Christian should be indoctrinated by capitalism or indoctrinated by socialism. We need to be honest and seeing what's helping people. One may be better than the other. I I, I think one is. However, we need to be aware of where they can go wrong. And, and not enough people talk about that. Take us out, Chris. Yeah, and I, I think you also have to be cognizant of the kind of like straw man argument because regulation is not nationalization, right? Like I have friends who right, are right. socialists and would love to see a lot of industry in this country nationalized. I don't agree with that. Regulation is, is not going to break capitalism, right? It's going to make it function better for people. And just look at the inflation numbers. If you want to see what what concentration is doing in our economy, from 2020 to 2021, corporate profits contributed 53% of the growth in prices, right? So 53% of the inflation that we saw that really hurt this economy, hurt a lot of people, 53% of it contributed by corporate profits. That's compared to an average of 11% from 1979 to 2019. Okay. The the non-labor costs were around 40% compared to 25%, let's say. So concentration, monopolization allows companies to have an unfair amount of control over the market and over the economy. When government steps in with regulation, it doesn't break capitalism. It makes it more fair. Well, and that's the thing. To talk about regulation in broad strokes doesn't make sense. There are good regulations that yeah. do hurt that do hurt the market and hurt consumers, and there are bad regulations. We can't just generally say we need less reg- regulation. We need smart regulation, yeah. which means sometimes it may be less because there's there's some things we don't need regulation for. But when it comes to something like this, we do need smart regulation. So don't just step on one side or the other. I love regulation or I hate regulate. That doesn't make sense. There's different. It's <laughs> such a broad category that you can't you can't talk about it in those terms. But we went a little over on this segment. I I think it was a good one. We will be right back on the Church Politics Podcast. Are you too progressive for conservatives and too conservative for progressives? As a Christian, do you find yourself feeling politically homeless? If so, then you're not alone. Listen, this is Justin Gibney, president of the AND campaign. And if you're a Christian who doesn't know a whole lot about politics or someone who knows a good deal about politics but wants to be more faithful in the public square, then you have to read the AND campaign's book, Compassion and Conviction. 
the end campaign's guide to faithful civic engagement that we publish with InterVarsity Press. Whether you just want to understand the relationship between church and state, why Christians should engage politics at all, how Christians should engage partisanship, politics and race, advocacy and protest, or even civility, this is the book for you. It's very much Bible-centered. It's Bible study and small group friendly. There are questions and exercises after every chapter that give you a framework for engaging politics in a biblical way. So if you want to do it in a better way, get our book, Compassion and Conviction, The End Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement. And we are back on the Church Politics Podcast. Chris, I want to talk about another issue that we've talked about before that I think really has the potential to change American politics. This is an issue, and if you look at the the folks who are now speaking up, that we should really keep our eye on. Let me read you this, and some of you who've been listening to us for a while will, will be familiar with this issue. This comes from the Washington Post. A federal judge Thursday denied a request to let Montgomery County parents pull their children out of the classroom when books with LGBTQ characters are read aloud. Several Muslim and Christian families sued Montgomery County Public Schools in May, saying the use of LGBTQ school books forces religious parents to either forego their beliefs or depart the public school system. They asked to allow their children to opt out of such readings before the school year begins in, in, on August uh, 28th, at least on a temporary basis while litigation over the permanent exemption proceeds. Eric Baxter, an attorney representing the religious parents, said the decision was wrong on multiple levels. Since courts have recognized that indirect pressure on parents or students to abandon their religious beliefs is sufficient to trigger the First Amendment. He said the school board has admitted it is trying to disrupt students' understanding. It's trying to disrupt heteronormativity and cisnormativity. Now, you got to understand this, guys. In Maryland, students are allowed to opt out of certain lessons, specifically the Family Life and Human Sexuality Curriculum, a unit reference in the state's health education framework. Proponents for an opt-out said the elementary-level books introduce similar topics around sexuality, gender identity, and as such, they should be eligible for the same opt-out. So you can opt out in in college, I mean in high school, but you can't opt out in elementary school. In our view, it's absurd that the school board, this is the attorney again, in our view, it's absurd that the school board is allowing high school students to opt out of the same material when it's presented in their health ed classes, but not elementary school kids when it's presented during story hour. Chris, this fight isn't over, right? They're going to continue to appeal this decision, which I think was a bad decision. If you read the decision, Chris, while, while, while there's some legalese in it, you almost feel like the judge might have been writing like a sociology paper or something like that. She might have forgot where she was at. Yep. Um, maybe she thought she was at Cal Berkeley and she was writing a sociology paper telling the the parents, uh, how bad their views were. But this is one, I mean, when, for people who always, you know, ask me, how do I not just go along with, with what everything progressives want me to and say that they're, they're great about everything. Well, I'm going to continue to 
critique conservatives and what they get wrong. And we do that quite a bit here, but I'll never just, that doesn't ever mean that I'm just going to go along with progressives. And here's one of the main reasons why progressives really feel like parents don't have to have the right to step in when it comes to education and say what they want their children to be exposed to and not, and not exposed to. They really feel like that's their decision as the experts, as the professionals to make for you and your family. And I keep saying this, I'll say it over and over again, that is a third rail for most parents in America that not even have to be religious parents. If the left is going to hold to that where they think they know what's better for your kid than you do, they're going to have some serious problems. So this upsets me. I'm glad to see our Muslim brothers and sisters stepping up and and saying, hey, we're not going to take this. This is not okay." If you read some of these books and what's in some of these books. It's appalling that a third a third grader who doesn't you know, there's no mandatory learning of African-American history, all that. But it's mandatory. We're going to force you. We're not even going to let your parents opt you out of this propaganda that we have for you right now, because we got to get that indoctrination in. Go ahead, Chris. Yeah, this this um, definitely upset me a lot coming into politics and organizing community work through education. I remember when opt-out used to be the go-to compromise for everything. If you don't want your kid to eat the school lunch, they don't have to eat the school lunch. Send your kid with their own lunch. You don't want your kid to watch the movie that we're watching in Spanish class. That's fine. They don't have to watch that movie. And all of the the weight and the pressure was really on the opt-out parents because they kind of felt like, you know, that's putting undue pressure on them. Folks, this is not a book ban. This is not, you know, don't teach it. This is a school district telling parents they cannot take their kid out of the classroom when material that they think is objectionable is being presented. I I have never, Justin, heard of a school district telling a parent that they can't opt their kid out. I don't think I've heard it for anything. And And what's the motivation for that? What's the motivation for you saying, no, your kid going to sit down and listen to this book? That is who are you and what are you trying to accomplish here? And then, you know, I I love what you said about the the opinion, because I I went and read the decision because I couldn't believe it. It does read like a sociology paper, but even within the context of a sociology paper, and I'm glad that this was quoted in the article, this statement, two sentences, with or without an opt-out right, the parents remain free to pursue their sacred obligations to instruct their children in their faiths, even if their children's exposure to religiously offensive ideas make the parents' efforts less likely to succeed. That doesn't even make any sense. You have a sacred obligation. We, We do not have any right to interfere with those sacred obligations. But even if our behavior interferes with the sacred obligation, it doesn't interfere with the sacred obligation. That makes no logical sense. And this is written in an opinion from a judge. And I I urge people to go read this. This is not, in my view, a legal opinion. This is a a social doctrine uh, and an opinion from that perspective. It, it, It does not make logical sense. So let's hope the Court of Appeals does their job instead of inserting their ideological positions into uh, their decision. 
Uh, because I agree with you. It, it's shameful that someone who is put up in a position of public trust would come down with this kind of de- decision, which is plainly ideological, plainly against parental rights, plainly against the First Amendment. And it's just going to stand to, you know, 10 toes down on that on that decision. But, guys, we have to enter into this conversation. We have to be more sophisticated than to say, OK, conservatives bad. Therefore, progressives good. And everything I say publicly has to be in support of one side or the other or else it's both sideism. And I'm pret- no, bro. It just so happens, good or bad, that the situation, politics, culture is just more complicated than that. And if we're not ready to be nuanced and deal with those complexities, then we're not willing to be good stewards of our citizenship. There is no explanation for you to say, no, a parent can't opt their kid out of certain books. They didn't say you got to take the book off the shelf. I don't want my kid dealing with that. I don't I want to be the one to talk to him about that. Not you. But again, and this is one of the biggest problems I have with progressivism today. The experts believe they know better than you and not only believe they know better than you that they need to be in between you and your child on this because if you're a conservative parent then you're bad and you're hurting your kid that's what's behind this whole thing we need to be here to step in because you're going to teach them the wrong thing yeah and that's authoritarian dude completely that's what that's what authority that's not what this country is about. That's authoritarian. You don't step into families and tell them what they have to learn. That you know better that their values are wrong, therefore the state, the school board has to step in and teach them the right values. That's not what you're here for. If that's what you want to do, then persuade the parents that that's what they should teach their kids. If you can't do that, then I'm sorry you don't get to use the public schools to do your bidding in that way. Sorry about that, Chris. Go ahead. No, no. Just to, to kind of like close the, the circle here, you started saying to, that we should keep our eyes on this because it is something that has the power to reshape politics. And I think it's, that's 100% true. I urge people who are in the progressive coalition on the left side of the aisle to understand that you are making conservatives because this is not something that is coming only from conservative leaning parents. And I watched personally just in the trajectory of a lady who I used to write with about a lot of different education issues, who was, you know, who checked off very many of the progressive boxes. And I saw her move, I mean, and literally moved from Chicago on this issue of parental rights. I mean, she's very involved in and kind of like more conservative politics and political circles. That's just anecdotal. But I do think this issue has the power to push folks who would otherwise be in a more progressive coalition completely out of the coalition because that's how much people care about their kids. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you start playing with people's kids, you're, you're in trouble. And let me end by saying this as an organization that talks a lot about civic pluralism. I think the right has some serious issues with civic pluralism. I think there is some xenophobia and there's this idea that the majority culture should control everything whether that comes from Christian nationalism or just, you know, other things, I I don't think they get pluralism. But there are a lot of people on the the new left that do not get civic pluralism either. And so just so y'all know, if you hadn't, I'm sure if you listened to this, you heard it before, civic pluralism deals with the idea that we live in a society where people have different beliefs and we respect their beliefs, even if we disagree with them. 
This is not respecting people's beliefs, especially when you're dealing with other people, other people's kids. No matter how passionate you feel about the an issue, you don't get to intrude on others' ability to disagree with you. That's what civic pluralism is about. It's not just about the easy issues that we all agree on. No, who cares about it then? It's about the tough issues that certain people in society feel very passionately about, but have to accept that other people disagree and get to teach their kids what they want to teach their kids. That is civic pluralism. If you can't deal with that, if you think it's only for issues that you don't care a whole lot about, then you don't get civic pluralism. We'll be back on the Church Politics Podcast. And we are back on the Church Politics Podcast. Well, Chris, I was strolling through social media the other day, and I ran into an interesting poll. And I I just want to see what your thoughts are about it. And the poll brings up the relationship between Biden, Trump, and Black voters. Now, there's no doubt in our mind that more Black voters are going to vote for Biden. But there's been some changes in the amount of support that Biden has from the Black community. Why? Why? We can have that discussion. But according to a a Fox News poll, this was a poll conducted from August 11th to the 14th. It was over a thousand registered voters. In 2020, Biden, and this this was also reported by Fox News at the time. In 2020, Biden had 91% of the black vote. They supported him. As of now, he has 61%. So nine, that's a 30% loss. When it comes to Trump, in 2020, according to Fox News' analysis, he had 8% of the black vote. Now Trump has 20%. I'm not exactly sure what accounts for that change. I'm not exactly sure that's a, uh, obviously a good change. But I want to kind of think about what could, what, what, what could have made, you know, what could this what could be at the heart of the, the this change in number? Because especially one for Biden, a 30-point drop is a big deal. Now, we're going to assume this is an accurate poll. We, I don't have any reason not to think that it is. They reported when it was 90, right? Now they're reporting when it's 61. What are your thoughts when you see a poll like this, Chris, and, and what it could mean? Number one, I think that anybody who wants to question the validity of the polling because of the the source, I can tell you, I did an, an analysis in the first congressional district, and I had a lot of data because I was running for Congress. We, we uh, procured that data. And if, if you look at Chicago, city of Chicago, first congressional district, the Chicago South suburbs, and you look at the election in 2020, you would see very deep blue. But if you change your analysis to trend, Uh, And we actually looked at 2016, 2018, and 2020, and and you change the analysis to trend, the whole congressional district, saving the the northernmost part that includes Hyde Park County University of Chicago, the whole district is deep red. So this idea that Black voters are slowly moving away from the Democratic Party is a real idea. I think that there are a number of reasons for this. We talked about in the last block some of the stuff that's happening in education and in schools. I think especially for Black men, the progressive sort of coalition has just failed to uh, develop a lexicon 
that speaks to community wealth building and family wealth building, as opposed to only talking about safety net and those types of things. I think that safety issues in terms of community safety and the approach of progressives to defunding police, going soft on crime. I think all these things are combining, not so much to move people toward Trump, but to move people away from the Democratic Party and the Democratic coalition. It seems to me, and I I I think you have some really good points there that need to be investigated kind of over time. It seems to me one thing this points out is Trump bad may not be enough. Yeah. Right. Like the Democrats just saying how terrible he is may not be enough to keep people because you you can over it's it's like the the boy who cried wolf almost like you can overstate something. It's like, dude, you need more. You need a positive agenda that people actually believe. Yeah. And part of the problem that I think the Democrats have, and this is is this something that I think they were talking about on Rising and maybe some other spots too, is the corporatist wing of the Democratic Party controls pretty much everything still. Yeah. And so it's hard to balance that with that this the party of the people narrative. Now, whether people really are in love, whether all these black people are really just in love with Trump or they're just fed up with the status quo is a question, you know, that I, I can't answer right now. But if I'm a Democratic strategist, I'm thinking we got to do something about this. Yeah. Because this bleeding is not going to get better. And we I think it's I think the party has gotten lazy in how it leans on the same narratives, which have been fruitful. Now, let's let's be let's be honest. For about three decades, the narrative has been very fruitful or more than that. Mm-hmm. It's been very fruitful. And, and it's not the narrative is not completely untrue. The, the Republican Party has some very serious race issues. Donald Trump out absolutely has blown some 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 dog whistles. So we're not we're not letting them off the hook at all because uh, I think that's real. However, you're gonna have to articulate more. Like you said, it can't just be about a safety net. Sometimes people want to hear something different to 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 you know to secure their vote. But go ahead. And it's, like you alluded to, I think it's a, a big problem heading into the election because at the end of the day, you know, when you go to a presidential election, a lot of people in mainstream media love to talk about the idea of swing voters independence. But when you look at a lot of the research suggests that there are not a lot of real genuine swing voters and independents. Most voters have a, at least a lean. And, and elections are first a base game. The African-American vote is a key part of the Democratic voting coalition. And if you lose in a tight election, like this election is currently polling, if you lose a few votes, here and there, it can cost you the election. And with this Trump bat thing, the other part that a lot of social science and political science tells us is that when people become, you know, sort of angry and, and, and really turn on the system, most of the time, that kind of approach, that kind of disdain for the process leads to inaction, right? And so even if folks don't go vote for Donald Trump, if they simply just don't show up to vote for Joe Biden, that's bad in the election. So yeah. this is a, a, a big deal. I started talking about this to Democrats in Chicagoland right after the 2020 election, shared some of that same analysis that I talked about earlier in this block uh, during the 2022 cycle. I hope that people around the country are taking it way more seriously than we're taking it right in the land of Lincoln. 
And then here's the crazy part. All these indictments haven't mattered at all in a negative sense. They haven't hurt Trump's numbers at all. And when if you're if you're looking from the Democratic side, the, the, the drop in his support among black people, coupled with the apathy that you're kind of seeing in the black community, coupled with Cornell West. Yeah. Didn't even right. Talk about that. That that that's some cause for concern. Coupled with can this man get through a real campaign? Yeah. And then you hear Nikki Haley say a vote for Biden is a vote for Kamala Harris. I mean, there's just a lot of there's a lot of things adding up. Just keep an eye out on it. It's 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 gonna be interesting. It's gonna be interesting, man. I don't I don't know that we can reach any conclusions on any of this stuff, but it's it's definitely worth keeping our eyes on for sure. Yeah. Well, that's all we have for, for this episode, man. We really appreciate y'all. Join our Patreon. Become somebody who supports the movement. Not somebody just who, who gets the information, but somebody who's actually a part of the movement. We would greatly appreciate it. As you already know, there's a cross that neither political conservatism nor progressivism is fit to bear. There's a civic hearing in need of faithful witnesses who love social justice and won't surrender the truth to be loved by the world. Politic with the boldness and compassion of Jesus Christ. Until next time, Ann Kim. I'll at you. This episode was brought to you in part by The Compelled Podcast, which uses gripping, immersive storytelling to bring Christian testimonies to life. Listen to missionaries, addicts, martyrs, and more who have seen Jesus at work in unbelievable ways. Listen on your podcast app or compelledpodcast.com.